podcast to Faromque Kano of Men and Podcasts I Sing. Yeah, I said I'd throw a bit of Latin into this episode. Well, welcome to Radio Prez Season 2, Episode 4. I'm Rona McAuliffe and I'm joined by my fabulous co-host, Hugh McCarthy. Hugh, how are you and welcome to the show. I'm great. Thank you for having me. We have a brilliant show coming up today with some amazing pieces, including the former Prez student, award-winning author and BBC special correspondent, Virgil Keane, and the importance of reading. We'll also hear from the lads on their film production this year with their debut film, Vic Dicta. I'm joined by a very special guest, Christy Donovan from Cork Missing Persons Search and Recovery. I actually did work experience with this guy, and he, he's, he's some talker, you'll never stop. To kick off the show, we're starting with a literary theme. Here's Joe Hayes with his review of The Book Thief. Hello, I'm Joe Hayes, and today I'd like to speak about a novel I've recently read. The Book Thief is a novel written by Marcus Suzak. It follows the life and adventures of Lisa Memminger and growing up in Nazi Germany. The author puts a twist on this novel by having it narrated by Death, a male narrator who guides the reader through the story in a monotone yet caring tone. Much of what he says comes out almost philosophical and even beautiful. Set in Nazi Germany during the early stages of the Second War, the book opens with the main character, Lisa Memminger, on the journey to her new family when her younger brother dies. She then steals her first book, The Gravedigger's Handbook. After she moves in with her new family, Lisa and her new father, Hans Huberman, set themselves the goal of finishing the book, her last link to her brother. What I enjoyed most about this book was learning about how it was to be a victim of the war in Germany, as it is often portrayed that all Germans were angry and evil people. Also, I think that this book does a good job in showing how dreary the lives of those victims living in Germany were. The sadness that came from Lisa's story also applied to all of those who fell victim to the war. In conclusion, I think the book leaves the reader with a sense of pity for Lisa and all of those who are affected by the war and violence, because in the end, they are the ones who had to pay for the actions of the Nazis. Overall, I'd recommend this book to any of those who haven't already read it, especially those who like the war genre, as it gives a different perspective to the war rather than being completely in favour of the Allies. I'd also recommend this book to anyone over the age of 13, as it is an all-around good story, but also a deep story and might not be understood by a younger reader. I've been Joe Hayes, and thank you for listening. Thanks for that, Joe. And sticking with the theme of literacy, here's a talk that former press student Fergal Keane, BBC special correspondent and award-winning author, recently gave to our fourth years about the importance of reading. It's always wonderful to be back in press because of the immense role that this school played in my life. I wouldn't be where I am today had I not had the good fortune to pass the entrance exam at the second goal, having failed maths the first time, uh, and to get into press. Um, it was a place where my, in, in the kind of classical tradition, all my uncles uh, had gone. We were known as what's called the press family. So you can imagine the horror when I didn't get maths at the first goal in the uh, entrance exam. But I tried again, and I did get in. And it, uh, it, it genuinely changed my life. I was lucky to arrive here at a time when a visionary headmaster, Jerome Kelly, um, had arrived a few years previously. Now, he worked in the West Indies on the missions, and he worked there at a time of decolonization, uh, when those countries in that part of the world were coming to independence. And he came to know and indeed helped to educate many of the leaders uh, of post-colonial um, Trinidad, where he was based. And 
he came with fresh ideas into an Ireland, you know, of the early 1970s, which was struggling still to emerge from the kind of cultural straitjacket of decades of that whole post-revolutionary period. You know, we were now watching television, books were being unbanned, but it still felt to me a fairly grey place. Jerome Kelly arrived here, uh, arrived into this school and arrived into my life um, with a shock, uh, an energetic shock, um, and certainly woke me up. He woke me up to the idea of social justice. Now, this is a school, certainly when I um, started to come here, it was it was mockingly said by people that Prez was where the cream of cork went, the rich and the thick. Uh, it was anything but that in my experience during Jerome. It was a place of academic excellence, but it was also a place where we were encouraged, indeed ordered, to remember that we had obligations to wider society. Jerome was the person who set up SHARE. Many of you are probably involved in SHARE. Um, I was involved in SHARE for several years here uh, on the committee. Uh, and to be sent out in those days into you know what was known the area known as the Marsh, to visit elderly people living in shocking conditions, forgotten by society. It was massively eye-opening. But also to see how Jerome used a subtle mix of um, encouraging compassion and pure blackmail with politicians and the city council to get them to live up to their responsibilities, to put meaning into the fine phrases that were used in this country's proclamation uh, of independence in 1916. So he was a social justice warrior long before that concept became popular, uh, and he transmitted that to us. The other huge thing that I got from this school it was, it was started certainly by my parents, but was a love of reading. A fantastic English teacher, Pat Coffey, who absolutely adored words. And to me, spending my life as I do in places which are very often full of intolerance, where people hate each other because of what they think the other person is, a very common thread in those places is the absence of real education. I don't believe that people who can read the poetry of John Keats or the novels of Scott Fitzgerald or the short stories of Frank O'Connor, are people who can be turned to hatred. So reading, to me, apart from the, you know, the aesthetic grandeur of words, but the human link that reading creates. The best writers get to the heart of the human condition. They tell us something about ourselves. They warn us, but they also bring us together. So I don't know how many of you read a novel as a matter of, uh, a matter of choice, but make yourself do it. Make yourself read novels, make yourself read poetry. It might be a struggle now, but in years to come, you'll feel grateful. It has enriched my life. You know, I have a reverence for words. It was given to me by my, by my parents, but especially here in this school. The most important buildings outside of the hospitals and the schools are the libraries. You want to be in libraries that are filled with books that will open your mind to a wider world before you have a chance to travel in that wider world. So celebrate words. Celebrate diversity. Because that, that's what literature brings to you. A whole range of cultural experiences. It takes you to places. From this city, from this small city, you can travel anywhere between the covers of a good book. So that's what I'd say about, uh, about reading and its importance. And I reinforce what Jerome said to me across the road. And that is, 
absolute imperative of recognising that you belong not just to your own family, not just to your own school, but to a wider world in which we are all interdependent. And that because of the position of privilege, and you do occupy a position of privilege by virtue of sitting in this place, of being educated here, that you have a moral obligation to take this education and use it in some way for the betterment of your fellow man. Thank you. Next up, a really exciting piece on film, and Vindicta, the award-winning short movie written, directed and starred in by Fourth Years. This was the first time it was ever run in Prez. It was great to be part in the creation of two films. Ronan is now joined by teacher Mr Casey and film music composer Liam Ring. Well, I'm here with Liam Ring in fourth year and our very own teacher, Mr Casey, who've directed um, a film called Vindicta. It's a horror film. And they've won first place at the First Cut Youth Film Festival. So guys, thank you so much for coming on the show. How did you come up with the idea for a horror film? Well, at the start of the year, um, they introduced a new module for us, which was the Film Studies group, which hadn't been done before in the school. So we had a very small group. There was only six of us. And the idea of the module was to come up with a film. And the end goal was always to submit it to a film competition. So... um, We spent the first couple of weeks just getting kind of used to each other. We went to the Everyman Theatre for a while with a man named Mark Donovan. And that kind of helped bring us together as a group, which kind of laid the foundations for the movie then. We only got to filming around mid-October, but we finished it all in the space of about, I want to say, six weeks. So the production went pretty well, and I think all of us were pretty satisfied with the end product. If you were to give maybe a 10 second sort of speaking trailer while you're on the the show what would you say to anyone um about the film it's a movie about a man who can't can't outrun what he's done in the past and eventually it catches up with him that's what i'd say okay. there's when we made the movie we had a very good idea of what the plot was but we didn't want to make it dead set we wanted to make sure that people could kind of come up with their own ideas as to why the main character was in the position he was in so we alluded to things but we didn't set them in stone if you get what I mean we'd give hints at why he was there we'd give hints as to what was chasing after him because the whole plot of the movie is that he's being chased by something but he doesn't fully know what so it kind of alludes to something he's done before because there's various signs and things that hint towards that throughout the movie that he finds um and, you know, eventually it catches up with him. So that's kind of what I would say about it. Um, you know, it's, it's it's a very short film, so there's not too much that I can say otherwise. You know, you kind of have to watch it for yourself to really understand and really get it. it. And it's a very easy movie to follow, really. You know, it's open to interpretation. But does that give you guys great, um, I guess, freedom in what you can do? Because you're... if. If, if you're only kind of hinting towards why he's there, you can throw in whatever you want. So would, would I be right in saying that? Uh, yeah, actually, you, you would, to be honest. I think that's kind of why we aimed more at being kind of open to interpretation because it kind of it let, it made us plan it out easier. We didn't have to stick by one theme and we could kind of make it a bit more open-ended. So it, it made it much easier, actually. Um, it made it easier to follow and... For a movie with no words, it made it much better, actually. I think 
So did you have sort of brainstorming sessions at the Everyman Theatre? Would you have all kind of got together? How many draft ideas were there? How many were scrapped? Was, was there a fierce argument over what we'll do? Uh, in fairness now, the boys were uh, fairly on top of their game, I have to say. Uh, there's a lot of credit due to them, a lot of credit due to Mr Sheen as well for allowing us set up the module in the first place as well. Um, so there was a lot of firsts going on here. Um, there, there was the introduction of all the different classes, all the different elements. So there was brainstorming. There was uh, scripts. Uh, I believe there was one or two scripts, but because of time constraints that we were under, they moved very quickly on it as well. There was a lot of planning out locations-wise, travel-wise, and everything like that. Um, so it was uh, fairly full-on, and credit to the boys as well, um, that they produced and uh, worked very, very quickly they taught on their feet, okay? Um, I think it's the case as well. That there's a lot of problem solving involved when it comes to film and anything when it revolves around creativity as well. So uh, the end product um, was very important. And the fact that it was student-driven, okay? It was passion from, from the boys taking their own uh, passion for film as well and creating something unique as well. So uh, very well done all around. I mean, so Liam, in a typical week, how much time would you spend on this? Well, we only had one class a week, which was two hours long on a Wednesday. So we never really had much time at all, actually, um, even when we started filming. Um, occasionally, we got an extra day to do it. So as an example, Mr. Casey and the school would be able to support us with a bus down to Muckris, as an example, which would have maybe been on a Thursday. But outside of that, especially when we weren't filming scenes, we had two two hours a week to do do things, you know, two hours a week to come up with ideas the first few weeks after the Everyman, we just kind of messed around. We had storyboards that Mr. Casey gave us. And we watched a few examples on YouTube of how to make these kind of scripts and stuff. So the six of us then kind of started making loose ideas of a script. The idea was always to be like a horror movie. We never came up with anything that wasn't kind of in that genre. We had a few, we had a few ideas that we had to get rid of because they were either, they just didn't work too long or we just, didn't have time to do them and eventually we took bits of almost everything that we made and it kind of all formed together and it made you know it, it ended up it ended up making Vindicta and it's a movie without any dialogue so in a way making it was almost more challenging so we had to put a really big emphasis on the locations we filmed in the music the sound effects and they were all pivotal to what made the movie because you know Obviously, most movies nowadays are made with the words, the dialogue, you know. I mean, with, without having any of those things, it made it a really big challenge. But I think we got there in the end, and I think, to be honest, it was probably better off we actually had no words in it. I think it was better for what it was without those words. And you chose to film it down in Muckers Abbey, which, I mean, which is a run-down church from the 15th century, a very, very eerie place. Um, what made you choose that location? How did you do the research and say, yeah, we're going to film it there? Well, uh, fair play. You've obviously done your research as well, saying that it's from the, the 15th century. I think what's kind of influenced it a lot from my point of view was the fact that I live in Clarny. So um, the National Park is like a, a fantastic amenity that we use quite a bit in the school here. And I think there was other schools in um, Kerry that have never used the opportunity to do it as well. So I think that had an influence on it as well. As soon as I realised that the the boys wanted to go down this route of um, uh, a, a thriller, 
Um, it wasn't my first choice, but it was something that they were passionate about. I felt that that's where it might connect with the audience as well. And I think it also kind of set the tone for the film. Um, you have the, the areas of the woods there as well. Also as well, what we kind of felt was that um, the, the the boys were in, in all of the, the place as soon as we got there as well. And it was something that was referred back to when we went to the film festival as well. It really, really made the film stand out. It did come up a lot, actually, when we were at the awards festival. They made a very big point about the locations of where we were, and they kind of made a big emphasis on Mockers because, I mean, the entire movie kind of centres around that one area. It's it's only six minutes long, but, I mean, there was a lot of um, a lot of attention given to it. We had drone scenes of it, footage. We had a lot of emphasis on the surroundings in there. Uh, there was a very... There was kind of a benchmark we used in there, too, a, a pretty big tree, which we gave a lot of attention to. It's in the title card and it's quite big in terms of when the main character arrives there and he's kind of in awe of it. Um, so really, I think that made the movie, Mokris. It kind of, it set the tone for everything else. Once we saw it, we kind of knew, all right, this is what we want everything to kind of be based off. We want, you know, this kind of, this eerie area to be what gives off the tone for this movie and show off, you know, what kind of genre it is, you know, that it's, that it's a horror movie. And is it difficult to, to film a movie out there? I mean, you're in the absolute middle of nowhere and you can't say a word. So what, what challenges are there out there? Well, um, we, we faced a lot, yeah. Um, so obviously with only six of us, it meant that it was a bit more organised, yeah, but we had very little people to do it with. And the days that we travelled up, other module groups actually came with us. That's a very good point as well, yeah. Yeah, the the photography group and I, f- I forget the other one, but there was, I think there, there was, was... Photography, art and film studies that went down yeah. with Miss Walsh, yeah. Yeah, so we there was about 12 other people who weren't even involved down there, so they were in there at the same time with us, so we had to make sure that we gave them the right amount of time to do things and then we had to film. And we were only in Mockers for one day, so we had to get everything done on that day. Um, we, you know, we had to utilise the time as best as we could because we, we weren't going to have another chance to go back down there really because once again like we were really limited by the time we only had about eight weeks to film everything so we had to make sure that everything that we did actually counted so some of the other problems we kind of faced down there were kind of getting the right shots and stuff with the equipment we had because the equipment that we had was very good but obviously you know we're, we're just the school at the end of the day so um, on the day we kind of had to pick the right camera angles you know we had to make sure that the weather was good for what we were doing we had to pick the right moments um we went through a a good lot of shots that we had to get rid of or just didn't work um but i I think we were up there for about three hours i want to say and we managed to get everything done just about yeah i was going to say i mean you might be at the mercy of the elements out in clarity national park at times yeah but um then you decided to enter the First Coast Youth Film Festival. Whose idea was that? Um, I suppose that that was uh, my idea. I think, you know, you need a, a carrot at the end of the stick to go for as well. And I'd seen the quality of it as well. Um, my own background was in film before I actually came into the school as well. So I knew about this competition and uh, it was something that my peers would have won as well. Um in particularly my wife won it with uh, a previous school as well. So there was a little bit of competition going on at home as well. So I said, well, if if they won, uh, of course, uh, PPC were going to come back with uh, the win at the end of it as well. 
And most importantly, where can we watch it? <laughs> well, well, I'd hope that uh, we might be able to put a link onto this podcast as well. Um, so that everybody can watch it. It was put up on the school app as well. And uh, we're hoping as well for the TY graduation that it'll be showcased on that as well. Well, guys, um, firstly, again, congratulations on winning um, the film festival. And for all you listeners, you can listen to Vindicta on the school app and it's on YouTube as well. And it's certainly worth watching. It's an absolutely brilliant movie. Thanks so much, guys, for coming on the show. Thanks so much, Thanks much Roman. Thank you. Thanks, Ronan, for that. Our second movie, Depth, will be released soon, so make sure you stay tuned to the school app and school website. Well, get out your popcorn for this one. This enthralling piece by George Hook and Ronan Maloney delves into the last bastions of stale sweat and cigarette smoke. Let us bring you down memory lane into the cinema houses of 1950s Cork. Hello, I'm Ronan Maloney, and today I'm joined by George Hook, the former radio presenter, and today we will be taking a leap back in time and talking to George about how cinemas have changed from the 50s to modern day cinemas. Roland, thank you for calling me. Did you used to go to the cinema when you were younger? And if so, how often? Well, the cinema was more important than everything. Like it was more important to food, family, rugby, everything. And it wasn't just me. The cinema was huge. You must remember that in the 1950s, every cinema in Cork was sold out every night. So, like, there'd be queues outside the cinema and you mightn't get in. Uh, for a schoolboy, obviously, you went in the afternoon. How many cinemas were there in Cork back then? There were nine cinemas in Cork uh, then, every one of them, ranging from about four or 500 feet to 1,200 feet. And do you remember where they were? I can remember them all. Ronan, why don't I take you on the tour? I'd love to. Well, Ronan, you and I are going to leave Prez now. And you, as you walked out onto the Western Road, uh, it's 1959. And there are very few motor cars around. Everybody is on bicycles or buses. And we walk down the Western Road until we come to Washington Street and St. Augustine's Church. And directly opposite St. Augustine's Church was the Ritz Cinema. Now, the Ritz would have had about 500 seats, and it was built in the 1920s. A lot of these cinemas were built in the 1920s. Now, what you did was you bought your ticket from the lady in the booth, and then there was always a guy at, at the door who checked your ticket to let you in. And all these guys in all different cinemas were all very well known. Like, they all had reputations in the city because we knew them all. And the Reds uh, would have been sort of middle of the road. But the great movie I remember was Earl Flynn, The Adventures of Don Juan. Now, of course, being Cork, uh, all the Corkies called it Don Juan, you see. But my father was uh, knew better, and he said, no, it's Don Juan. So I went into press the following day and said I was at the adventures of Don Juan, and they all thought I was being snobby, thinking I had uh, more knowledge than I really had. So that was the Ritz. Now, not much further on, you're going to come to that famous corner on the Grand Parade, uh, Finn's Corner. And straight in front of you, and the name is still above it because they're rebuilding it in offices or something, was the Capital Cinema. Now, this was, was very smart. 
and and it had a great big foyer, and there's some lovely steps up to the balcony, and it was really class, you know. And um, we would go obviously on Wednesday afternoons, and probably skip rugby if we could, and Saturday afternoons because there wasn't as much rugby then in Perth as there is now. But the capital, uh, or sometimes my father used to take me to movies and after work, his work would be half five. And I always remember we went to see in the capital the Jolson stories, the great Al Jolson who was a, a famous singer of the 20s and 30s. But the actor who played him, Larry Park, never made a movie again because it was a great communist thing in America at that time run by a fellow called Senator Joe McCarthy. And anybody who had any kind of sympathies. And they went after Hollywood actor. They were just banned. And Larry Park never made a movie again, which was tragic. Um, but that was the capital. That was pretty smart. Now, swing a left there at the traffic light and head down to turn right to go down uh, Patrick Street. So now about halfway down Patrick Street, you came to the pavilion. Uh, now, the pavilion, again, opened in the 1920s, very smart. It had a cafe. We couldn't afford it. We didn't drink coffee. What we used to buy were packets of wine gums. Every school buy corks into these wine gums at the movies. And the pavilion was very smart and a beautiful entrance and all that. But the movie in (laughs) the pavilion, I remember, was 19. 56. Ronnie Delaney had won the 1500 meters for Ireland in Melbourne in the Olympics. And there was a movie about it in, in the pavilion, but it was a double header. There was always double headers in those two movies. And the other one was The Beast with Five Fingers. And I hate horror movies and I was terrified. So I sat there with my head below the seat and my eyes closed for the entire horror movie to watch Ryan Delaney won the 1,500 metres. But now we're getting serious. We're moving further down the Savoy. And that's still there today. You can still see the front of us in Cork. And that, not only was that the biggest cinema in Cork, it was the biggest cinema in Ireland. It had 1,200 seats. And uh, it was just fantastic. Now, we, it is up the steps into the foyer where you buy tickets uh, and at a restaurant. It was all very smart, but we were poor like schoolboys. So we went down the laneway at the side and we got cheap seats, but we had to walk about 500 steps up to the very highest part of the balcony. So that's where all the, the schoolboys used to watch from in the Savoy. My father took me there, I, want, I remember, for a movie I've seen about 50 times since, the Glenn Miller story, the great story about the Glenn Miller band because my father was a drummer in the band. So there you are. There we're halfway through. We have uh, five more to go, but that's where we are. Rona? What were the conditions of the cinemas like? Now, that's really that's a really super question. Like, obviously, if you went to the Pavilion uh, or the Savoy, uh, the seating was pretty smart and everything else. But I'm going to talk to you later on um, about some of the cheaper cinemas. And the price of a ticket in today's money would be about three or four cents. And there were benches. There weren't seats. There were benches. And they'd invariably be on the ground floor. 
and then be a balcony which would be twice the price. So if it was three cents downstairs, it'd be six cents upstairs. But they were very basic cinemas. In fact, it rung if you leave the Savoy and walk across to Winthrop Street, you just as you go into Winthrop Street on the left was the Lee Cinema. And that was again a kind of a middle of the road cinema. But again, my father brought me there. And in the 50s, Hollywood musicals and singers and dancers were the big thing. And he brought me there to see the great Fred Astaire dance and, and Gene Kelly. And that was the lead. But then just keep on walking down Winthrop Street, come down now to the post office, keep walking across until uh, you're at the post office. So now you're in Oliver Plunkett Street and turn right at, at the post office and go up a bit. And there's a tailor's there called Sabbath. And they don't know that it used to be a cinema. It was called the Imperial Cinema. Now, nobody called it in Cork, called it the Imperial. They called it Maya, because Maya was the doorman. And they all knew the doorman. But that was really cheap. That was even cheap upstairs. And you know, there was a lot of fleas in the Imperial Cinema. We used to all come out scratching. But I saw the greatest cowboy movie of all time yeah, called Northwest Passage with Spencer Tracy. That was wonderful. So you had, and then if you cut across to the mall, uh, just opposite the Imperial Hotel, you had the assembly rooms, and that was a cheapo as well. And uh, we we we'd go there, but we never worried about the fleas. We were really interested in the movies. So, what type of movies were popular in the fifties? Well, like the thing is that the movies were the most important thing in everybody's lives. I mean, you must remember there was no television. There was nothing really. So therefore, movies were everything. I mean, just to go back to the Savoy, on a Sunday night, the Savoy was booked out years in advance. People bought their tickets and you had to buy them every Sunday. And if you, if you missed one Sunday, they'd give tickets to somebody else. So, like, that did tell you how keen people were to go to the movies. Um, and but the movies, like I told you, Hollywood musicals, like Singing and Dancing, Fred Astaire, Gene Kelly, uh, were, were just, we watched them, like, they're just, they were so good. Like, um, Easter Parade with uh, Judy Garland and Fred Astaire, if you watch it today, I defy you not to be excited about it. It was just wonderful. But, but the kids then, also like the schoolboys, remember World War II had only ended 10 or 15 years before. Um, so the, every second movie was a war movie. Um, and it was really funny. Like, the movies were mostly made in America or Britain. So the Germans were bad guys and the Japanese were bad guys. So there was nobody had any sympathy for the Germans or the Japanese. George, did you used to go by yourself or with others? I remember my father for, because he, he introduced me to something I love to this very day, musicals, big band music, all that sort of stuff. So he'd bring me to, I suppose, what you'd describe as a quality movie. Then a bunch of us would invariably like the cinema full of Presbyterian, Christian, American, like, and just around the corner from Presbyterian, there was a shop called Peg, and Peg sold a cigarette and a match for a cent. 
So you'd buy a cigarette and a match, and then you'd go to the cinema, and you'd puff away happily in the cinema uh, where nobody could see you, and like you were a big shot. But you'd be there with your mates. And then, like, as you kind of came to fifth year and sixth year, you would take a girl to the movies. Now, you couldn't really pay for them, so they have to pay for themselves. Um, although some of the rich fellas in prayers could pay for them, the girls, but I couldn't. And I famously got stood up by Mary Jones and Mr. Boy. Uh, I, I, I was smoking my cigarette first, and then I leant over to kiss Mary Jones, and she said, you smell dreadful, George. And she flounced out of the cinema. And that was the end of my romance with Mary Jones. So, George, I'm going to have to wrap things up, but thank you for sharing your thoughts and painting a wonderful image of how cinemas were like in the 50s. Thank you. Well, Cork certainly has changed a lot since then. But now it's over to the big interview. Hugh McCarthy is joined by Christy from Cork Missing Persons Search and Recovery, where they discuss the work that they do. Now, Hugh, you did work experience with them. How was that? It was great. Uh, I was actually deeply moved, so I thought we had to get Christy on the podcast to like w- raise awareness and stuff, because like, I'd never heard of it before, and it's, it's a great thing that he does. And how come you ended up joining the uh, Missing Persons Search and Recovery? Um, well, actually, he was in the rugby club of uh, that my dad uh, used to coach, so um, he knew him very well, and we were looking for social work, so he just got onto him, and it was pure luck. And with further ado, let's hear from Christy O'Donovan. Hi, I'm Hugh McCarthy, and today I'm joined by a very special guest, Christy Donovan. How are you? Not too bad, you. How are you getting on? Good now. So, Christy, what is Cork City Missing Persons Search and Recovery, and how did you come to join it? Cox City Missing Persons Search and Recovery is in existence 21 years. It was set up in 1980 by David Linehan, um, who was searching for his father. Uh, his father went missing, and the statutory bodies at the time, the guards, the fire service, couldn't search beyond maybe two days at the most. So when they couldn't find him, there was no one to look for his father. So himself and two of his friends got a rowboat and they searched River Lee for four months until they found his father. So it was born from that. So he decided at the time that it would be a good thing that nobody should ever have to go through what he went through and his family went through, which was there was going to be no closure for them unless they searched themselves. So that's where it was born from. And I'm in it about seven and a half years now. So it's pretty close to everyone's heart that's in, involved in it, you know. Yeah. So how did you come to join it? Well, a friend of mine, David Jane, um, I met him in Tesco's seven and a half years ago, and he said to me, do you still have your boat license? So they were looking for someone to drive a boat, as he told me. Well, obviously, that was a story to get me in. So since that, it's just been nonstop, really. It's just it's getting busier and busier, unfortunately. What keeps you going on the long searches in the cold for hours on end? Like, what keeps the fire burning? Well, I mean, the reality is, is that we, what, we, what we do, we, we don't like to advertise our services, but when people ring us, they're at their wits end, there is nowhere else to go. They contact us. We've been on the river for 30 days, 33, 34 days. Um, all, all weather, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, whatever it takes to find someone, I suppose, to give people closure. But on the cold days and cold nights and stuff, it's just you're driven by the fact that most of the people involved in it have first-hand experience of losing people in a traumatic circumstance. And that's what keeps you going. And it, the bottom line is that we're there to give families closure. And that's what we do it for. And how how do you do with it yourself? Like, if you find a body, how would you like? Would you be 
the next morning? Would you be thinking about it all night or? Well, you'd be thinking about it for more than all night. You'd be thinking maybe three, four, five days. What we do is we, we have access to counsellors and stuff, but basically the people that you're with are all of the same mindset. So if, when you're searching, fellas, just keep each other going that way. When you find, when you, when you recover somebody from, in whatever circumstances, they say we do land in river searches, um, we just all discuss it among each other. We have a debrief after research just to get guys and make sure they're all okay. But we have a phone network there, all around guys. You can re- we can ring fellas at three o'clock in the morning to answer the phone. So that's our kind of um, pressure valve for the want of a better word. So Christy, what's the process of the team when you get a call? What action do you take when searching for someone? So when the phone rings, um, we have a call out phone 24 hours a day, seven days a week, unfortunately. I have to, I, I hang on to that phone. Um, so when the phone rings, it could be anytime, day or night. First phone call you will get normally is from the family. Then you, what we do is we contact the guardie that are investigating the missing person, get as much information as what we can, ring all the members, then I'll get out of bed, I guarantee you, 99.8% are going to be out of bed and on the road 10 minutes. We meet up on our lockup. If it's a water search, we'll gear up for water. If it's a land search, we'll gear up for land. We kind of grab bags that you just fire into the jeeps and the vans and you're gone. Um, get out to the scene, speak to the guards that are, sit, that are standing there, walk out. We, 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 we do a lot of research into missing people. We, we do a lot of online stuff from the point of view of them. Um, we kind of attend online seminars and stuff and we do a lot of research, books and internet and the whole lot about missing people, people with Alzheimer's and um, mental illness and all this stuff. So we do a lot of research about that. So we have we have a process. So we've four of our members have done search management courses and they are that science-based, evidence-backed, really, really, really good stuff. So um, we've sent four members on that and we've applied that to every search from the day that the four members did it to present, it has worked out pretty much 100% accurate. So we feed that information back into the people that sent us on the course and they put that back into their database and all the other search units that have attended those seminars and stuff, they, they put that information, when they find somebody, they'll send all that information back into the same system so the database is getting bigger, so you're getting much quicker results on searches because you know 99.8% of the time where somebody should end up or will end up. Uh, I actually did work experience with you, Gracie, and it was great. And um, I got to see some of the sonar and technology. Can you tell me how that worked? Well, a couple of years ago, we decided that some of the, some of the, the searches we've been on have been fairly dangerous. And um, we decided that we were going to spend some of the donations on more technology. So technology has moved on leaps and bones. Every year it changes. So... We bought um, a new site scan sonar suite, a site scan sonar for about six years. It was state-of-the-art when we bought it, the initial one. It was state-of-the-art back then, but technology overtook it, so we bought a different one. So the site scan sonar, really, it's a towfish sonar, so you, you pull it behind the back of a boat, you hook it up to a computer, the brains of it is a small little box, you saw that. Yeah. Um, so that interprets the images, so it, it sends out sound, bounces off the bottom, it sends you back a picture of what's going on under the boat, Left and right, you could set that out to maybe 60, 60 meters if you wanted to, but we walk off a 20 meter spread, which probably gives you the best, the best imaging. So like you saw, you saw the trees and everything else we could see in the bottom. You could see everything, stuff that you'd never see in a million years. So we used, we used that. So we, we can locate vehicles, we can locate persons in the water with that. We bought a thermal imaging drone because a lot of the searches are being done at night. So 
because you can't see the terrain. You're dependent on local knowledge. So it was you bought a thermal imaging drone, and that's 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 paid for itself. So the way we would, the way we would look at it, those things is that the thermal imaging drone was five thousand euros. The towfish was about eight thousand. Then we got a laptop donated to us uh, by a company outside in Kilbritton, and it's, that's worth about eight thousand euros as well. So the, the technology, all the technology we have, is kind of current. So it pays for itself by virtue of the fact that if you find anyone with it or assist in finding somebody then that piece of equipment was worth buying no matter what the cost. And that's what we that's, that's what we do with it. So like I said, the drone is, is a super piece of kit. It'll cover huge areas very fast. So if we're searching big areas, so somebody goes missing in in, in open ground, we'll say. So also, you always search this, the digital line, we search by people, but the open ground is searched by the drone. So the drone can cover the whole field in one pass. Whereas if you had to put people through that, you would have mile 10, yard, 10, 10 feet apart and you'd be going through. But we're looking for missing people as opposed to um, rings and hats and gloves. Now, we've, all, we've obviously been involved in those type of searches from the point of view, looking for clues as to where somebody's after ending up. So that's a different dynamic. But for searching big areas really quickly, we use a drone for that. And the towfish then is for searching underwater. You can't see anything. So we found, we found, we found a lot of stuff underneath the water for that, you know, so... Money well spent. Can people volunteer or they have to be specially trained? Or? Well, we train everyone ourselves. You can volunteer. Um, it's a slow process. To, we have about a one year. We have probably one year of training, we'll say. No, we, we took on three volunteers, I'd say. It's, but the, we say when COVID kind of died off last year, we took on three volunteers. Unfortunately, COVID, <laughs> there was a resurgence of COVID. So it forced us to change our tack a bit. So what we did was we, we bought an extra vehicle so that when... COVID was in at the start. We'd always travel together. Everyone would travel together. So we'd have we'd have a Jeep and a van. So we so we we'd always travel together. We couldn't do that in COVID because we didn't want one person getting sick. And then everyone, our service would be gone. We'd have to be after over ten days. So we bought an extra vehicle and um we divided the unit into into even groups, fours and fives. And if you got a call out, those fours or fives travel together to get to the searches. So if one person side in that vehicle was diagnosed with COVID, they were off the road, but we could still provide a full service. So that was our, so volunteering for us, it's it's really specialised work, I suppose. Um, it took me, and I was used to handling boats and all these other things with boat licences and stuff. It still takes about a year for you to get a handle on what's actually going on. You know, it's, it's, it's a tough, it's a tough environment. It can be a very tough environment. We search places that, you know, you, you, people, you'd say, Jesus, how does somebody get in here? But you have to be thorough. So if if you miss something small, the ramifications of that is that some there's a family at the other end that you've missed something that you may have may have given closure. So you have to be very careful. So we have a lot of really experienced guys who have done this for years and years, or longer several members there since the, if its inception. So he's there twenty one years. So he'd be my I'd be sending fellas with him because he's he knows pretty much the whole lot of it, you know? Yeah, yeah. What you do takes a lot of courage going to difficult and sometimes like dangerous situations. Like, What motivates you to do it? We kind of have a, um, what's the word, a kind of fluid safety assessment for the want of a better world as you're going into these things. Um, like the end goal really is closure for families. That's what you're trying to do. You're trying to give closure. So you know, to be honest, I don't think any of our members really think about that. We think about it when we're searching because you can be putting guys in harm's way like we have a dive unit. Those guys are going into the bottom of the river trees down there there's all sorts of stuff so we do dynamic risk assessment all the time if people aren't happy to do something nobody gets forced into doing anything 
There's no peer pressure. There's nothing like that. So everyone that has a hand in it, everyone that's out searching, everyone gets an input. There's no, there's no pressure being put on anyone to do anything. If, if it's something I wouldn't do, I wouldn't ask anyone else to do it. And it's vice versa. Everyone, and that's, that's how it works so well because it's such a mix of people. If it's military backgrounds, truck drivers, bookkeepers, you know, we've got everything. But they all work well together because of different dynamic, you know. You were in Ukraine recently, delivering supplies. What was that like? Well, Ukraine, we've been there twice in about six weeks. Um, myself and my buddy, we, we did it years and years ago. We, we were in Bosnia a few times and we were in Kosovo, um, Chernobyl, uh, Romania. Um, so we, we, I was watching on the TV when it came on, I'd say the war was about maybe two weeks old. And my wife was looking at me and she said, how long before you're going to go? And I said, I said, I'd be gone by the weekend. <laughs> she knows me, she knows me well. So, um, got a van and, um, that van turned into two vans and then that van turned into three vans and that van turned into four and then five. So the first time out, we were, we were gone for about eight days. Uh, it was pretty rough going out there. No, it was, wasn't rough for us. No matter how rough we had it, the refugees had it a lot worse than us. So, like, complaining about it on our end doesn't really matter because our idea of roughing it is having a McDonald's maybe and driving for 14 or 15 hours. We got to the border, it was horrendous. Were there injured people? Were there guns, military? Yes, yeah, so there was a lot of military at the border. So we went to the border of Medica. Um, it's probably the main border crossing. It's, on the, it's the main road to Lviv and, and from Lviv you went there to Kiev and stuff. But we got to the border crossing in Medica. It was minus nine when we were there. And there was people, women and children mainly, coming all over the border, walking all over the border. And what they, what they could bring with them was just what they were wearing and whatever they could carry, including their children. There was no buggies. There was a lot of old people being pushed over the border. We actually saw one old person being pushed over the border with a shopping trolley. What sort of items did you bring with you? Like, and where did you get the money for it? The first time we brought a lot of food, a lot of clothes, all new, obviously. Um, cleaning products, like cleaning products, personal hygiene, sanitary products, all that kind of stuff, because 90% of the people coming over the border at that time were women. So we were, we were, we were, we were specifically targeting the people that were coming out as opposed to the people that were going in. So we brought a lot of stuff that could go in, but the people that were coming out had nothing. So we knew that before we left. So we put up a fundraiser on, on the radio and on the, on the social media and stuff, and we raised a pile of money. In a week, we had about 32,000 euros. God. Uh, what were the living conditions there for the refugees? Was it poor? Well, they'd come over the border. If you could imagine a giant car park um, in the middle of nowhere with a border crossing on it. So border crossing out there is one line of, is the Polish side. The other line is the Ukrainian side. You're leaving the European Union probably maybe 200 yards before you get to the border. Um, so they'd come over the border. Refugees would come over the border. They'd be processed by the Polish authorities. They'd go down into this makeshift camp, for the want of a better word. A lot of people, like ourselves, ordinary people, had come out of their, of their own bat. They paid for themselves to get out there. They brought tents and they brought, they made up, set up soup kitchens and all sorts of stuff out there. They were giving out clothes and all that kind of stuff. So they'd process the people at the border. This is a 24 hour day, hours a day operation. This was the nine to five. It was 24 hours. We were up there twice, first for 12 hours and second time for 10 hours. But they'd come over the border. They'd go down into through this camp. They'd be shepherded on the buses. There was buses there. There were police buses. So they'd shepherd them down. But we went down and it was a really sad thing was that the mothers were singing to the kids to keep them calm. 
God, that's that's scary. Were you ever like in fear of your life? Whether were you ever like I could die any moment here? Or? Not particularly, to be honest. Like they they had come from that. Like you know. Yeah, I've had a few times in my life where I've, I've been in fear of my life, but not not at this stage because it's, it's it overwhelms you. You know, like I consider myself to be a tough enough, a tough enough nut and sword. Everyone that went like, but when you see women and children like that, it's just it's, it's if you if you turn the this the screen to black and white, it's World War Two, and it's happening in twenty twenty two, which is just unbelievable. Like, yeah. yeah. How did you raise the funds for Ukraine so quickly? Well, we were we the first trip we did with him, company dinner, so. It was just, it was, I never saw a reaction like it, to be honest, in a week. So, um, it was, it just was money. So it was, we used our account, the missing person's account. So it would, it gives, so the, the charity regulator has a full role to play in all of these things. So when we said submit our accounts, they're, they're monitoring our accounts. So to make it transparent, we said all the money will go through our account. So if you marked, when anyone that donated to us marked it, Ukraine aid. We receipted everything every, so when we went to receipt. So anyone that donated cash, they got a receipt for it. And it was all done through Father John and Trish in the office there above in the North Cathedral. So they looked after that department. So, And that's always, I just, I still don't understand how so many people, it was fantastic. There was one woman came up, she gave us um, three euros fifty and I gave her a receipt. She said, no need for a receipt. I said, everyone's getting a receipt. Because <laughs> we, we always walk off of, if we get a euro, we'll stretch a euro to five euros were very, very persuasive people. So, you know, that's, and there's, there's value in that, like, you know. Why do you do what you do? Like all these charities, where do you have the time for this and come <laughs> to do this? Well, I do a lot of work with my brothers, so I'm, I'm lucky enough in that sense that uh, I can just p- pull the plug whenever I need to. But um, I don't know, it's probably, it probably just in me. I've always been that way. My first uh, humanitarian trip, I had my small flow was only, I'd say four or five months old. They were, we were, they were looking for people to go to Bosnia to ferry out humanitarian aid in the middle of Bosnia. So at the time I was driving trucks, so they were looking for truck drivers. So I said I'd have, I, I could help out in some direct way. And this is the same, same as the missing persons. It's the same thing. That we can affect people directly by it. So if you can affect it directly by it, I think that this is, it's, the onus is on everyone that has something to give, to try and give it if they can. And what do you think would help Cork Search and re- Recovery the most? Would it be fundraising or raising awareness or what? We don't really, we don't really advertise what we do because of the nature of what we do. People ring us, like I said, and they're at the wit's end. There is nowhere else to go. No, there's a lot more awareness of, of our, what we do now. When I started, I'd say our budget for a year was probably about 5,000 quid. We'll say for that, that would be everything all in diesel to hold that. But we've expanded our, our, our service to people. So we have, more vehicles, we have more boats, we have more members. So last year it cost us 28,000 euros just to exist without doing anything just to exist. So it's just, it's a very, it's a very expensive, it's very expensive and we're not funded by the state. We don't get any grants. We don't get anything like that. We just, people, they run table quizzes. They have draws. A couple of weeks ago, there was two kids above in a school in Farnley. They ran a raffle and they raised a hundred quid. And the two kids I was talking to their mama, she said, she said the two had more because each of them wanted to hand over the envelope. So I said, cut it down the middle and just hand over an envelope each, you know. It was just, and they're the only children, they're only, these only school kids, like small primary school kids, you know. Yeah, and that's yeah. what, like you see that goodwill out there, you, you know, it's, it's it's brilliant, like, you know. I heard you got like a new base of operations recently. How'd you manage that? Yeah. Well, <laughs> oh, there, that, that, that's, a, that's a long saga. Have you 20, 21 years to listen to it? Um, we're always looking for a base. So we were based below in the Commercial Park. We still are for now. Um, 
who never charged us a penny rent or anything like that, no rates, no anything like that. But it was um, a big mixed use warehouse, so there was, everyone was coming and going. So what we do is very specialised. All your stuff gets contaminated even being in the rivers. It's, you're contaminating your stuff in the rowing clubs, I tell you that, because it's just the river water and stuff. So we didn't really have anywhere that we could call our own, for the want of a better word, and purpose build it. So we were kind of, we got a 20-foot container a couple of years ago, put a lot of stuff into that. But then as you gather more stuff as you're going along, that becomes unusable because you just don't have the room. So we contacted a lot of politicians a lot. And the only fellow that really did anything was Michael McGrath. He came down last July and he had one look and he said, we're going to have to do something here. So in fairness to him, he got in contact with Conor Moles in the Port of Cork. And between the two of them, we managed to get um, 4,000 square foot unit on the side of the river in Horgan's Quay. And we'll have showers and toilets and we can be able to decontaminate the stuff. We'll have a family room. So we, we meet a lot of families if we're searching on the rivers. We'll meet a lot of families that will be standing on the riverbank watching this going on and it's horrendous for them. So at least you can give them a cup of tea. You can give them somewhere dry. So that's what that's what this is all about, you know. So we're delighted, absolutely delighted. Blown away by the Cox City Council and Port of Cork. Michael McGrath with the, the people that we're probably most thankful for really is the people of Cork because they're the people that allow all this to happen. They put a lot of pressure on a lot of politicians. I got a phone call one morning from Michael McGrath to say, what have you said to whoever? He said he got hundreds and hundreds of messages from people to say that this was a disgrace, we should have somewhere to go. But it wasn't me, it was actually somebody else. Not one of us at all, it was somebody else. And, you know, it just keeps it keeps the public eye, you know. So we're a long way away from being the finished product, but we're getting there, we're getting there. Like. And uh, if people are listening and wanted to donate, how would they do that? Well, if you go to our Facebook page, Cox City Missing Persons Search and Recovery, there is um, a link there to um, the Lock Credit Union. And on that link, you can donate straight to Lock Credit Union. You can walk and donate over the counter or whatever. And we 50 cents is the same as 5,000 euros to us. It doesn't matter. We're not fussy. Anyone that wants a receipt, they can have it. We're a registered charity. So everything is accountable. It's all gone back to the charity regulator. So we have no, you know, there's, there's, everything is accountable for us. So that's, and that's the way it has to be. Okay, thank you very much for coming in today. No problem. Great great talking to you. Thank no you very problem. much. Well, thanks you and Christy for that very moving piece. Well, that concludes this episode of Radio Prez, Season 2, Episode 4. Thanks so much for joining us. And as always, I've been Ronan McAuliffe. I've been joined by Hugh McCarthy. Hugh, thanks again so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Um, make sure you stay tuned. Uh, episode 5 is going to be a great lineup again. I'd just like to thank Mr. Olinchik, George Hook and Elaine for all the work that they put in and to the school management. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>